Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to That's Truth. I'm glad that you have chosen to make the time on a Tuesday evening to listen. Maybe this is the first time you've ever tuned into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If so, this is a live call-in program and we are excited to have you. Maybe you've listened to every single episode as we have aired them over the last year and a half. Welcome back for another exciting practical episode, interactive episode. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who allow us to come into their homes this evening. Our topic this evening is one that is very practical, becoming more and more practical or needed by the given day, by the given hour, but it is one that creates much controversy, especially when you step outside of the realm of those who claim to be Christians or evangelicals, and the topic is that of abstinence. Pastor, let's start out by, as we often do, defining the term. What do you mean by abstinence? Well, generally speaking, when we talk about abstinence, we are talking about a person um, practicing or restraining himself from indulging in some activity. But generally speaking, it refers to, uh, as we are using it this evening, uh, restraining from all kinds of um, sexual activity before marriage. So it's just um, avoiding um, any kind of sexual act. Uh, before one ties the nuptial knot and becomes a married person. That's what we're talking about, absence this evening. Now, is that similar to what Paul talked about uh, when he talked about celibacy? Well, sometimes the words are used synonymous, but in actual fact, uh, celibacy is normally restricted to um, a person abstaining from marriage for some religious purpose. Um, it does involve, obviously, marriage involves sexual activity, but the term celibacy normally relates to this matter of restraining from marriage, and of course that in itself means that you're restraining yourself from sexual activity. So they're not really synonymous terms, although it's used that way. Um, so there's a difference in that regard. Another word that is often uh, discussed or tied in with this topic is... And it's created some controversy. It has also uh, created some hush-hush. We don't talk about that in public. But the concept of masturbation, is that acceptable from a biblical worldview? Does the Bible have that word? Does it teach anything about that? What principles should we apply? Well, that word itself is not in the Scriptures. But there are other sexual terms that are used in the Bible that would put that under the the umbrella of these, for example, uh, the Bible of uncleanness. 
the biblical term uncleanness covers all kinds of non-sexual sins that do not involve the actual penetration. So that would fall under the heading of um, of uncleanness, um, moral uncleanness. Uh, but when we talk about uh, the word masturbation, we are talking about uh, sexual stimulation, self-stimulation for some kind of sexual release. Uh, and that is not okay. Uh, it is wrong uh, because sexual release is only to be uh, had within the context of marriage. So when a person goes outside of marriage to get sexual release, um, that makes it wrong in itself. Um, you know, the, the, the if you check also the Pauline writings in Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 to 5, when Paul is dealing with the whole matter of uh, the sexual experience within the context of marriage, which is the only context the Bible authorizes and uh, authenticates, that that's the only legitimate way. It's interesting that uh, Paul makes it quite clear that the sex must not be directed towards one's own body. In other words, he says, for example, in that passage that um, no, the wife doesn't have control of her body, uh, neither does the man have control of his body. Uh, clearly, it, it's, it's saying that it has to be a, a mutual experience between the, the couple and uh, the idea of self-pleasure uh, not intended to be oriented towards the partner clearly would be wrong if you use a system of logic. Now, I've read some psychological books and I've read some Christian books as well. I think Moore was one of them when I was a lad because all all of us, basically, uh, when we were young, we go through this, this kind of a problem. And I was trying to find justification. And quite frankly, he gave me justification. It was a psychological release, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is what is advocated, but it is wrong because God has a natural way of releasing that sexual tension. It's called nocturnal emissions. Uh, what people call a wet dream, that is God's uh, system, natural way of dealing with that kind of pent-up sexual frustration you might have. Uh, Same thing with a woman with her period, etc., etc. So God has designed that He has given a release valve, and um, any stimulation, sexual stimulation designed for self alone is a perversion of what God intended this act, sex act. The sex act was also between a male and a female. Masturbation is really the, the sex act in relation to oneself. So it misses the whole plan and the design that God had. And that's why it is it's wrong, biblically wrong. And of course, I don't have to tell the audience, those of you who are familiar with these kind of problems in dealing in, in, in uh, counseling, that um, there are people who have become so addicted to this thing that even after they get married, it affects their married life. Hmm. Uh, uh, so it's not just something going through your teenage years and, and adolescent life. It can be a real... Um, game changer in this the relation between a husband and wife. So uh, even that in itself would tell you that becoming addicted to it uh, would be wrong from a Christian perspective. Pastor, there's a lot of information out there. I've read some studies where secular uh, statistic- statisticians have said that it's been proven that abstinence doesn't work. It's an outdated philosophy. Uh, I did a lot of reading this afternoon, and I came across a statistic that really shocked me. Maybe it shouldn't have, but in a study that was done in 2018, 2017-2018, asking those who claim to be Christians what 
whether it's okay for teens to have consensual sex outside of marriage, would you believe that among Catholics, 41% of Catholics that were interviewed said that it's okay for teens to have consensual sex outside of marriage? That surprises at the same time it doesn't surprise. The reason for that, the Catholic Church is full of contradictions. Um, These doctrines are contradictory, and it's not surprising that in this aspect that the the Catholic Church has normally had a very, very strong orthodox standing on sexual sex. Uh, for example, that's why you've got the priests that are uh, had to be celibate. Um, it's always seemed to emphasize, it, emphasize that um, sex is somehow... Uh, nasty and a taboo. Um, it has very strict re- regulations in relation to contraceptives not to be used within the marriage act, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it would, at, at this point, it would seem surprising that forty-one um, percent of them would would endorse um, consensual relation between teenagers. Uh, but I I wonder if this is not a concession to the times in which we live. We don't want to lose our young people. Uh, we want to uh, because you know it's a big thing with young people and it's an act of compromise because there's nobody who can show me anywhere in the Bible that um, sexual activity outside of marriage is endorsed in scripture it is completely wrong the Bible makes that very, from the beginning to the end um, all the epistles even the, 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 the gospels where our Lord begins to talk on these issues uh, he makes it very very clear that th- that in itself as a matter of fact could I say this if looking on a woman and lusting after her and not even committing the actual act is sin, according to Matthew chapter 5 and 6, how then can the act itself be less than sin? So how can I or anybody, any church, any pastor, any pope, any priest endorse as legitimate um, interaction, sexual interaction between teenagers, even though it is consensual? It is false. It's wrong. And that is a damning statistics. What I would be interested in knowing, but, uh, Nathan, is what did the other churches say about it? That that would be something that I would like to... Uh, uh-huh. So the next sentence in this book, uh, by the way, this is done by Barna Research Group, uh, so it's a notable organization. The next sentence says, by contrast, 23% of Protestants say that it's okay for teens to have sexual, yeah. consensual sex. But even that, that's is a compromise. That's yeah. a very, very high, high that's figure. That's almost 25%. Yeah. yeah. That, gives you, you know, um, that gives you an idea that we are headed towards what the Bible tells us will ultimately happen. The apostasy, the falling away. Not only falling away from biblical doctrine, but falling away from biblical morality. And uh, I'm not surprised that not only the Catholics, but um, the, the Protestants are moving in that direction. The whole consensus today, the spirit of the age, is that there are no absolutes, and they believe in uh, moral relativism, which means that everything, uh, nothing is is, um, ever completely wrong or completely right. It just depends. And then, of course, there's the situation ethics, where it depends on your circumstances to decide whether or not you engage in something that is morally wrong or illegal. So I think this is part of the trend, basically the spirit of the age that has begun to infiltrate the church. It's unfortunate that the, the Protestant churches as well are falling in line with that. But that, that is to be expected because the Bible talks of these matters in respect to the uh, prophetic, um, especially in terms of the last days and eternal generation. Uh, it's interesting that he says shall be the days in like Noah and the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I mean, if those days are not upon us, I'm not too sure... 
uh, that person who can't see those days are here. You're either blind or you can't see. But the reality is that these are the times in which we live. Going to the next level of uh, closer to closer to home, I would say, the evangelicals. Uh, 96% of evangelicals said that even if sex is consensual and contraception is used, it is not okay for teens to have sex. Now that's, that's a much more better statistic. But yeah. again, notice that you've got the Protestants, you've got evangelicals. Evangelicals is almost a, a sub-branch of the Protestant movement. And uh, that would be generally um, churches that are not the, what you might call the established churches. Um, those would be like Baptists, uh, Methodists, um, um, even Pentecostals, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a, I, I think that is more favorable. Even that, it should be 100%, not just right. 96%. Uh, so you will find that that will trend um, up as time goes on. In other words, you're going to find that uh, more evangelicals will accept the general consensus and, and, and give in to the spirit of the age. So expect that to happen again because the Bible has made it very clear prophetically that we are in the last days and part of that manifestation is going to be seen in the low level of morality that we will experience within the church. But aren't you holding to an outdated philosophy? And let me give a little bit of background for why I'm saying that. Uh, 75% of baby boomers, the generation of boomers, said that sex ed classes should teach primarily waiting for sex or abstinence. Whereas only 57% of millennials agree with that statement. So obviously each generation has a different perspective, a different view. So isn't abstinence just outdated? Well, it's outdated if the Bible is outdated. Uh, So if a person is holding the biblical truth and believe the Bible is infallible, is inerrant, is God's word, uh, it is never outdated. The moral principles of Scripture are as binding uh, from the book of Genesis right to the book of Revelation because it's an expression of God's will. That's why we have the moral law, which speaks of his character. So it might be outdated in terms of the generation in which we're living, uh, but when it comes to the Christian, uh, whether he's in this generation or next generation, if there is another generation or other previous generations, we always have to hold the biblical morality. The scriptures doesn't change, the time changes, and that is where I think the compromise has uh, led the church where it has lost its moral voice, because rather than Christians sticking to Christian standards, sticking by the Christian standard, living by the Christian standard, and being a, a, an exception uh, somehow is attempted to mesh with society and to be accepted by society. As a result, it is given into the lower moral standard of moral times, and that, as a result, we've lost our light, we've lost our salt, and our testimony is in tatters because we haven't taken a biblical stand on these things. Do you have a question or a concern about something that was said, or maybe what the Bible says or doesn't say? Give us a call. We'd love to interact with you. The phone number to be put live on the air is 1-268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 782-1454. Now, Pastor, I know in many, unfortunately, but in many uh, Christian homes, even very conservative homes, the pendulum has swung to the point where sex and such topics are taboo and they're just not discussed, they're just swept under the rug, they're just ignored and hope for the best. Why do you figure that is? 
Well, many people have a mistaken notion uh, about the Bible view of sex, that it is something nasty or sinful or shameful. Um, part of that uh, is the fault of the church. And what I mean by that is um, the church has not been very open in dealing with these things in the past. And depending on which denomination you came from, um, within circle, certain circles, um, it, is, it, is a, it wasn't something that you would discuss. And if it was raised, uh, it would raise people's eyebrows and you almost um, are forced uh, indirectly to almost table it rather than discuss it. Uh, and the other thing is that some people have even used uh, Psalm 51, verse 5, as an uh, example uh, to support this uh, false sentiment. Uh, you know when David said, In sin did my mother conceive me? You remember that song? Yeah. That song? Some people say, you see it there? But it was Sex outside is, of marriage. <laughs> right, right. And not only that, uh, you see that it had to be sinful because David said, In sin did my mother conceive me? So she was involved in some sexual act. Oh, it was David's mother. Sorry. Yeah. I was, was thinking yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, what I'm saying is that that is perceived and interpreted as that that's a sinful act. She, she yeah. went in and she had, you know, and some people twist that. But that's a false interpretation because what David is really talking about uh, is that he inherited a sinful nature yeah. from his mom through the Adamic uh, curse as a result of his disobedience. So that's a distorted interpretation. But there are people who grabbed onto that and uh, even use that uh, as a basis for making um, discussion about sexual things a taboo. The Amplified Version of the Bible, by the way, um, clears that up very, uh, that particular verse. And this is how it translates that verse for those of you who might need. It says, Behold, I was shapen, I was brought forth in a state of iniquity. My mother was sinful, who conceived me, and I too am sinful. So the emphasis there is on her sinful nature. And, and I think the translation there brings it out much more clearly. Um, sometimes the King James Version um, is not as explicit as it should be. It might have been explicit back in 1611, but we are now living in, I mean, hundreds of years later, and the language sometimes changes as well as the meaning, and it doesn't have the impact that um, and it can lead to false interpretations. Are there dangers to having just swept everything under the rug? Do you feel like we've lost a generation or two? Well, I, I think that we have failed not only as a church, but I think as a family. Uh, even Christian families, not even Christian families discuss these matters with their children. It's very rare that it is done. Uh, I think the church uh, perhaps need to help in that regard. Um, in maybe the, the youth pastor or the pastor meeting with the young man, the pastor's wife or some senior woman meeting with the young ladies and, and dealing with these kind of things that the parents don't feel capable or feel embarrassed to deal with. But a lot of um, a lot of result of not dealing with these things, most of the information about them, you get them from under the street lights. Uh, with the guys uh, on the beach, your classmates at school. Now the internet, uh, and now social the internet, media. social media, and I don't have to tell you if you've got cable, uh, mm -hmm. all of these things. Uh, but I think it is hurtful that we haven't dealt with it more forthrightly and dealt with it in an atmosphere and in a way that um, dignified the, the act of sex and, and prevent it, uh, present the biblical view of how God sees it. Pastor, I have a study in front of me here that says that 8 in 10 parents uh, 
say their job has never been harder. And most, 65% of them contribute that or attribute that to social media and technology. Is there hope for the next generation as far as raising them in a godly way? There is hope if parents are willing to do what's required. The problem that I find with parents is that because all of this technology is available to the their friends, um, the children's friends, and they've got these cell phones and got all this kind of tablets and got all this kind of information, that they feel as though they're depriving the child of um, th- those things if they were to take them away or monitor them. And I think if we're going to save this generation, we can't get with the technology, we all know that. But we have to put things in place that can screen what information is coming in. If we don't do that and we act in a laissez-faire kind of way and we just give them access to these tools, uh, they are going to be misused. And I don't have to tell any person who is reasonable and who has gone through uh, adolescence and teenage years, a vulgar picture, a nude picture, it never leaves your mind. It, it remains there indelible, and it causes you to fantasize and have all kind of imagination to create all kind of desires with you. We have to prevent that happening to our kids. And we're not. if we're not doing it, we are dooming them to a life of depravity and uh, sinful behavior. But it, it requires guts on the part of a parent. Right? It requires a determination of some kind of discipline to be put in place. If we don't do that, I think we're going to lose this generation. But how in the world do we protect them in 2019 when Carnival, you don't even have to have Carnival, you can drive down Market Street tomorrow morning and you will see much more than God ever intended for you to see. So you'd have to stick them in a locked room and they couldn't have TV, they couldn't have the internet, they couldn't have uh, magazines. Uh, how How is that possible? I am not suggesting that we cloister them away some kind of a monkery and they become monks. It's not going to happen. But what I'm suggesting to you is control. Control. Mm-hmm. They, can have a te- they can have the television, they can have a computer, they can have... But they have to be. There are things you can put in place to screen uh, pornography, for example, from being put on these 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 get different gadgets. That's what I'm talking about. But you can't. There's no way that you're going to be able. All you can do right now is to minimize it, right? And even when you minimize it in your home and you go to school, it's still available. But at the same time, you have to minimize it because if you don't do that, uh, you are not helping the problem. You're exacerbating the problem. So you've got to do what you can do as a parent to minimize this kind of exposure. You can't stop a child when he goes down to town and you got a teenager or a young person, the nakedness you see all over the place. I mean, you, you can't tell these people to dress uh, and so on. But you can point them out to what Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes, I would not look upon a woman. And you have to tell them that, um, you know, you can't help seeing, but the second look and the third look, you can control that. Yeah. That's when the sin kicks That's in. That's when the sin kicks in. So, but it's a big challenge. And we, rather than surrendering and throwing up our arms in desperation and hopelessness, we need to put things in place that in our homes uh, to try to minimize the impact of these being exposed to this kind of um, crap and, and pornography. So if I'm understanding you right, you're saying it's a multifaceted front. You minimize the trash that's coming in and that they're exposed to, but also address the heart uh, is it in the Psalms it says, as my heart is, so I am? As a man think of his heart, so yeah. is he. Yeah, that, again. And, you know, even the, the monitor, take the monitoring even of um, 
these um, romantic novels that young people, teenagers normally get themselves involved in, even the parent need to monitor that. Nothing wrong in a, a romance, but it's good to pick it up sometime and read it yourself to see exactly what details and how gory this thing this thing is, is, is there. But if we leave our kids and we don't put any kind of restraints and we don't put any kind of controls in place, um, the situation is going to worsen and it's not going to help the child at all. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. It says, I have heard from several biblical teachers that if a wife does not give sex to her husband any time that he wants, that she is in sin. Some would even say that it's the wife's fault if the husband seeks sex outside of marriage. Are either of these true? Well, hopefully we'll come to Corinthians chapter 7 and see what Paul teaches there. Paul really teaches that uh, within a, a marriage, a Christian marriage, there should be a mutual consent about restraining or in, indulging in, in, in sex. Uh, Paul uh, even talks about the fact the only reason for restraint, um, of course, there may be medical issues that are a different thing, but generally speaking, uh, he said, except for time of prayer and fasting. And then he says, uh, even as soon as that is finished, you better get back together, lest it can become a means of tempting the, the person. So sex is supposed to be something that is regular within the marriage. It's supposed to be mutual. And in regard to any time and any uh, when he wants, it depends on what... He, <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous because uh, I understand his statement, but clearly it can't be any time and any place you want. But it should be that within the context of marriage, a wife should not deprive a husband of sexual intimacy and use it as a weapon against him and weaponize it uh, to control him or to bargain with him or, to, or, or something of that nature. Similarly, a man should not do it. Um, God has designed the human body, male and female, that both partners can mutually satisfy each other's needs. And if you are married to a person and you're married in God's will, you have the capacity to meet his sexual needs. If you think that he is turbocharged, you still have the, the, the capacity to meet his needs. You have to meet his needs. If you don't meet his needs, those needs um, might find fulfillment outside of your marriage. You don't want that. So what God is saying in, in Corinthians chapter 7 really is that uh, the wife body does not belong to herself. The husband body doesn't belong to herself. What that means is saying that the, the husband has right to the woman's body. The woman has right to the, wom- uh, to the man's body. And... Um, but there are things that get involved that could, um, lead, for example, infidelity, uh, unfaithfulness, um, not meeting the needs of the home. I mean, it's very difficult for women to respond emotionally in a case like that. For example, that um, there's not enough to take care of the kids, um, there's not enough on the table, there's not anything in the, um, the cupboard. And those kind of issues, um, other things as well that could come in. You know, he's reckless. He's he doesn't do any work at home. He just comes home. He just sits down on a chair, relax, watch television. She's working like him. He she comes home. She got to cook. She got to clean. She got to wash. And the rascal, all he wants to do is to jump into bed. Clearly, those are things that would create problems between husband and wife. But if a man and a woman um, are doing what they're supposed to do as a husband and wife, the man is responsible for the love atmosphere of the home. The woman is responsible for the respect and the submission in the home. If both are doing their part, uh, generally speaking, the needs of each other should be met. But a woman should not withhold herself from her husband um, to victimize him or out of anger, out of frustration, whatever it is. Um, her job and his job is to f- satisfy the needs of her partner 
And that is the biblical. As a matter of fact, when we look at chapter 7 of Corinthians at some point in time, the Apostle Paul is so profound in what he says. And if ladies and gentlemen and married couple would just take chapter 7 and follow what Paul is saying, you're hardly going to have a lot of infidelity. Like we've got it today. But um, to answer the person's question, uh, unless there is some physical reason or some infidelity or some unfaithfulness or uh, something that really is out of the way, uh, a wife uh, should be willing to have relations with her husband um, as his needs need to be met and vice versa. And God has made you with that capacity uh, to meet um, your husband's need or you meet your wife's needs. I don't know if that answers the question in full, but when we come to Corinthians, we deal with it in more detail. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 7.59. We're talking about abstinence and the, that topic obviously spreads itself into other realms, but Pastor, we've been talking about the biblical view of Nathan, sex. Nathan, can yeah, I? Can I? I want to inject something here. By the way, this is why uh, when you are dating and you are at the stage where you're thinking you're going to get married, I'm not talking about early dating now because there's certain topics you shouldn't bring up until you're like engaged. When you're engaged within a year, you're going to get married. You, you should discuss topics. Like, for example, there's nothing wrong in trying to feel out during that period of time about um, these things about frequency within that. So that there's no surprise when you go into marriage that um, she hears from him and he hears from her, listen, you know, we get married, this is, this is, this is what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I just think that during the whole process of dating and engagement, I think that people really don't deal with the issues and the expectations. And people get totally frustrated afterwards because having not expects the expectations, the, the partner just think automatic that the, things are, the, the person thinks the way that you think. Uh, I've known of people who, when they were dating men, like hot potatoes, and then when they get married, it's like an iceberg. And the person is totally shocked. I mean, totally, totally shocked. Mm. And I think that it's a mistake not to. And then when you're doing premarital counseling, by the way, that is why you need, you bring these things up, you discuss these things, because the couple may be so shy and so timid and so reserved and so reticent. They don't feel comfortable maybe raising it. But during during pastoral counseling, when you're doing premarital premarital counseling, you, you deal with this kind of a matter and you talk about these kind of issues. You try to help the person in that process. And that's this, by the way, I could say this, but Nathan, there was a time when we didn't need premarital counseling. There was a generation when a person said, I do. It meant I do. There was no thought of um, divorce. This is a different breed, a different generation altogether. The whole concept is if it doesn't work, a jump ship, jettison ship, and, and find another ship to, to sail through. And that's the sad state that we're in. So it has now become mandatory. I think I've said in another program, I forgot what we were talking about, that um, if I were the government at this stage and I control the marriage in, in this country's marriage certificates and so on and so forth, it would be a mandate that no person could get married unless they'd gone to a premarital counseling. 
I know when my wife and I got our marriage certificate in the state of Georgia in the U.S., uh-huh. uh, we got a discount on the, not that the marriage certificate cost that much, but because we had premarital counseling, they gave us a discount on the price of the certificate. Wow. I was surprised that a secular government did that, yeah, yeah. but they recognized the importance. Yeah, There's a gentleman in the States, uh, his name is Manus, I forgot the first name, but he has started a movement called uh, Mari Savers. And uh, he is doing a tremendous work in trying to reverse the divorce trend in America. And what he's been able to do, by the way, is to get pastors within an area, say like pastors within St. John's or pastors within another parish, all agree, mutually agree, that they would not marry a person until they had premarital counseling. Okay. So they, it says it's a, I mean, the, the transformation, he's given some statistics as a result of pastors understanding this and working together to do this. Because if I don't offer premarital counseling because they want it, I mean, they don't want it, they can go to another church and it doesn't matter. But because of the trend towards divorce and the breakdown of the home and the family, and you want to preserve that. He's been able to do a masterful job of getting pastors together in an area, in America, for example, and said, listen, this is the statistics. This is how we can help save marriages. And it had been enormously successful. I wish it could be reduplicated in the Caribbean, uh, and I, I hope at some point we can do that. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that there is hope for reversing some of these trends if we follow a biblical pattern. Definitely. I mean, look, the Christian faith came into a world of total moral chaos. The Christian church gave to the world one word, chastity. The pagan world did not know that word exists because it was just so common. It was common for man to have his wife, mm-hmm. but it was known that he would either have a little boy uh, as, or he would have several women. I mean, that was a given in the pagan, in the pagan world. Christianity came in and changed all of that. They had polygamy. A man could have several wives. Christianity changed all of that. And that's what real, genuine, powerful, authentic Christianity does. It transforms a society. The problem we have today is that we have a fake kind of Christianity that is compromised in morality, and we don't have the impact we would have had if we were... Suppose every church you know and every Christian you know were practicing abstinence. You think about that for just a moment. Suppose the churches, the marriages within the church were lasting, and people were seeing the permanence of that. Do you not think they would crave what we've got? Yeah. Of course they would do that because people want something different. And the church has failed in regard of not holding to the biblical standards and compromise. And we've lost a moral authority. I don't know if we can regain it, uh, but we whether we can impact it in totality, there are um, segments of Christianity that um, remain true to Scripture, uh, to the morality, and they will have the impact um, because God's Word, if practiced, uh, impacts society. And that has been proven historically in every age. So you're saying that there's hope if we follow the biblical model. What is the biblical view of sex? Well, uh, let me just share a few thoughts with you here. Um, uh, God sees sex as something that's a gift. It's a wonderful gift that is whole and um, it's supposed to uh, satisfy uh, the person's uh, needs within the context of marriage. 
Uh, for example, in Genesis 1.27, Genesis 1.28, Genesis 1.31, and Genesis 2.21-25, it is very clear that God created human sexuality. He made them male and female. And after he had made them male and female, he made one marvelous pronouncement. It was a very good. So clearly, uh, he created sexuality, human sexuality, by the fact that he made male and female. And he pronounced it good. Uh, it's interesting as well. And, and by the way, in, in, in Matthew, sorry, in the same Genesis account, it says the two shall be what? One. One. And it also says an amazing statement. And the two were naked and not what? Ashamed. Ashamed. So clearly, uh, this was God's design for marriage. In Matthew uh, 19, verse 4 to 6, um, if you would turn there for just a moment, please. Read that to me. You'll find that uh, Christ in that passage confirms uh, marital sex as God's design. And uh, he made it very, very clear in that passage. If you read it, uh, if you can read from Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 19, 46. Yeah. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. You notice he endorsed the, the concept that God created homosexuality, uh, because he said he made them what? Male and, female. and female. And then you notice the order in which he says... You leave, you cleave, and you do what? Become one, one flesh. flesh. So here he's sanctioning uh, the creation uh, by God of human sexuality, and he's also sanctioning and endorsing the sexual act of the oneness between the, 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 uh, the, the, the couple. And then when you come to um, Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul points out that sex is vitally important in marriage. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is strategic if we are going to combat uh, adultery and other forms of sexual sin. And he makes it very clear in that passage that um, no partner should withhold themselves apart from mutual consent. Would you read that for me, please? Uh, Corinthians 7, 5. 1 Corinthians 3 to 5. 3 to 5? Yeah. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent, for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and to come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinence. But I speak this by permission not of commandment. Yeah, you look in the passage like that, you know, the scripture is not prudish about sex at all. I mean, it's so explicit in, in, in details that are given there. And in that passage, it's, it shows you very clearly that the duty of the husband and the wife is to satisfy the, 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 the sexual needs of the other person. And if there's any withholding, it is with consent. It makes it very clear. It has to be consensual. To answer the question of the person that therefore um, sent it on the on the internet, if a um, a wife, um, if there's no legitimate reason 
a legitimate reason, I mean, if there's not infidelity, uh, is there not mistreatment, abuse, whatever it is. Medical condition. Medical condition, etc. Um, if a wife is not um, mutually responding to her partner's needs and consenting to her needs, it is disobedience. And what is disobedience? Sin. Sin. As simple as that. So I would say to a person, uh, anybody on the any married couple, your responsibility within the context of your marriage is to meet the sexual needs of your partner um, if those needs are legitimate and he's not expecting you to do um, non-biblical things. Um, you should be able to meet his legitimate need. And you must not use it as a bargaining tool uh, with your partner. So we should have uh, free and full sexual relationships within the context of marriage, and God expects the partners to fulfill their obligation to meet the needs of their partner. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question or a comment, we'd love for you to interact with us. You can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or if you would prefer, you can send a WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. Or you can comment on the Facebook Live video feed, and it'll get passed along. Before you go any further... Um, I think with, when it comes to this matter, I think that um, Christians need to read up on these issues. For example, uh, I might use a, a simple example here, Nathan. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. But if you can have some idea of the, the uh, psychology of development in terms of the sex drive, it's important to know, for example, a husband. Take a husband. A husband ought to be aware that a woman's peak sexuality is in the 30s. If he doesn't know that, uh, you can frustrate her, especially if he's older than her. Uh, you get take a person who's in his 30s and the, their partner's in their 40s. They're, they're, they don't have the same drive as their partner in their 30s. And if they're not cognizant of that, it really, really is unfair in the first case and uh, it can lead to so much frustration because when you have sexual frustration in your marriage, it affects every other part of your life. So I think that sometimes, that's why the Bible says, dwell with them according to knowledge. Right? You've got to find these things out, discover these things. I often ask people when I'm doing premarital count, what books did you read? I'm shocked that a lot of people going to marriage, they haven't read a book. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't know a thing about marriage, yeah. right? And that's a shocker because you're making the most the second most important decision in your life. You're making that decision without information, right? I'm going to put you on the spot here sure. for the young couple or the couple who is looking at marriage or considering marriage. What are some good books that you would recommend? Um, while you're thinking, I know Jim Binney, Dr. Jim Binney has yeah. a book called The Ministry of Marriage, which is an amazing book. Yeah. The, the other one, too, I would recommend, Tim Lehe has one. But I would only recommend you do this when you go through the engagement period. It's okay. called The Act of Marriage. Okay. I think that really is a fascinating book in terms of dealing with the, the mechanics of the mm -hmm. actual uh, sexuality. I think that's a, a book that I, if, I mean, every church should give a, a young couple that book to read. Uh, there's another one by uh, the guy, uh, Mac, uh, Wayne Mack. 
has one preparing for marriage. Yep. That's a classic. That's a classic. I would, as a matter of fact, I am inclined now to use the contents of that in, in my premarital counseling. I think it's an excellent book. It's got that, a lot of like quiz questions. And kind right. Of, it's, yeah. a, it's like a manual. You can yeah. actually, when you're doing premarital sex, I mean premarital marriage, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, forgive me. That is one of the books I would, uh, I wish that our church, we buy like maybe a f- 15 or 20 copies, and we just sell it at a cost price to the person that we're doing premarital counseling for. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's a marvelous book in itself. And if you haven't read that book, those of you who are thinking of it, it by Wayne Max, it's called uh, Preparing for Marriage. I think that's another good book I would recommend. Very practical question that just came in from another listener. How can a person, this is in reference to uh, engaged couples talking about the frequency of uh, expectations of sex after they're married. How can a person, especially a woman, know how she really feels about sex, having never experienced it before marriage? That's a interesting uh, uh, fair question. question, but it's a trap question as well because that's the question that men use a lot. Okay. That how would I know we are compatible until we have experimented experimented in right. that? I find that that's just so very very common, and women buying it all together. My simple answer to that is God has designed your body to meet the needs of your husband. Simple as that. You got to trust God that God knew what He was doing. He de- He designed the manual. He t- if He tells you in the manual that you can mutually meet your partner's needs. No matter who tells you, whether it be a psychologist, whether it be somebody under the lights, whether it be a workmate, it doesn't matter. God's Word is absolute truth, and He has designed you to be able to meet the sexual needs of your partner. And by the way, it doesn't mean that you're going to have the same sex drive as He does, but that's what, that is what love is. Love is that I sacrificing myself for His interests. He's sacrificing himself for my interests. It's a mutual sacrifice. So the idea of how would you know, God says it will happen, and God says that you can do it. So if God says you can, ha- it can happen, it can do it, listen, it can do it, and you, it can happen, and it will happen for you. So don't buy into the idea that you wouldn't know, etc., etc. Your job is to be obedient to what God expects of you, and, um, and he has asked you to be obedient because he knows that this is what it takes to make a marriage work, and that's why he has put it in the manual, and you just need to follow the manual. So you keep talking, to Pastor, about the fact that we need to have sexual purity before we're married. Prove to me in the Bible where that is. Well, there's several passages in the Bible that uh, explicitly deals with this matter. Um, I hope you can assist me this evening. Yeah. If you've checked First Timothy chapter five, uh, verse twenty-two, and I will check First um, um, John chapter three. Uh, but if you find that passage, you just read it for me. First Timothy five twenty-two. Okay. Five twenty-two. Lay hand suddenly on no man, uh-huh. neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Right. I mean, that's a clear direction to the pastor that he must keep himself pure. But that principle uh, is not just a pastoral principle. That's a biblical principle that you, we keep ourselves pure. In First John chapter three, verse three, it says, uh, talking about the hope of the believer having Christ's return. 
Uh, he said, every man that have this hope purifieth himself. He keeps himself pure because that's a requirement that, 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 that God had. In Philippians chapter 4, uh, not only do we need to practically keep ourselves pure, but the Bible tells us there, whatever things are pure, think on these things. We must have pure thoughts, not only pure in our practice in our life, but we must have pure thoughts as well. But in addition to those particular verses that use the word pure, purity, uh, there are a number of verses in the Bible that refers to holiness. And uh, and uh, it, holiness, of course, is something that God desires for his children because it's a manifestation of God's character. And the law, the moral law, is a manifestation of God's character. And we are told, again in the Bible, to keep ourselves holy. Uh, for example, uh, Romans chapter 12 uh, verse 1, it, it, we must present our bodies as a holy sacrifice. Right? That means it's not tarnished, it's not impure, it's not defiled. So the body must be presented to God as a holy sacrifice. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 4, um, if you could you read that for me, please? Yep. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Even before we were made and we were converted, it's God's plan and God's purpose and God's design and God's will that the believer be holy and that the believer be without blame not be any moral, immoral charge brought against the believer. So that is clearly God's will even before we became Christians from eternity. Yeah, that that just, was God's plan. That just made me think of Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Right. Uh, and, and good works, of course, refers to those things that we do in life that God honors and uh, is pleasing to God. And then First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 4, 14 to 16. Do you have that? First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Right, holy in all manner of conversation, all manner of life. Right, and then notice he says, "Don't fashion yourself according to your former lusts, your desires, your sinful desires." As a Christian, now we have been changed. We must put off those things, and we must put on these things. And so, God expects the believer uh, to be holy, because God says, "I'm holy." Manifest my character. Manifest my my attributes. And one of those great attributes is purity and holiness. And that's what God asks asks of the believer. So, not only do we have the the word itself used. Uh, in Timothy and First John and Philippians chapter 4, uh, calling for purity. But uh, we also have verses that parallel that in terms of using the word holiness. So clearly, um, the Bible calls for sexual purity. I think of James chapter 1, uh, where it talks about Every man is tempted when he's drawn away. Of his own lust. Yeah. And enticed. And, yeah. <coughs> enticed. That's how sin starts, by the way. Um, it has to do with your desires, uh, your sinful desires, your, 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 what you want, your cravings. And when you, you're drawn away because something attracts those cravings and you yield to those cravings, and you go and do exactly what is the opposite. But it, the sin is really the sinful nature within that creates these longings and these evil desires that are within the heart. Remember that Jesus said that uh, 
All these things come from where? The heart. Out of the heart come fornication, adultery, lying, extortion, etc., etc. That sinful nature of us and those desires that are um, uh, that come out of us when we are appealed to by things that attract us. You're listening to That's Truth. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? Want his advice on how to answer a question that was recently asked of you? Give us a call. We're here to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. You can call 1-268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Let me just take this opportunity to say thank you for making the time to listen to That's Truth. We're here not just to be talking, but for the sake of being able to strengthen you and encourage you in your Christian walk. And maybe you're listening tonight and you're saying, you know, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I don't claim to be a Christian. We are still thankful that you're listening. And Pastor, can you just real briefly explain what does it mean to be a Christian and how does one become a Christian? Well, we've said this uh, on the radio. We need to be repeated again and again and again because there is so much misunderstanding and misconception apprehension of what being a Christian is. People think that, well, I go to church, I'm a member of a church, uh, I live a good life, I do good works. Uh, Those are things that follow Christianity. Those are not things that make you a Christian. You become a Christian when you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're a sinner, and um, that conviction leads you to the point where you, I would almost say, bring you to a point of desperation, where you where do I go? What do I do? Now that I know this, what happens? After I come to the point where I'm convicted of my sin, the Holy Spirit impresses upon my heart my need of repentance, turning away from sin. But I need something else more than just that. I just only need my sins forgiven. I also need righteousness. And that's where I need to understand that Christ does that. He removes the sin and the guilt that I have when I put my faith and trust in Him. But in addition to that, the Bible makes it clear that he, the transaction takes place where his righteousness is imputed to your account. So he not only removes your sin, he puts you in a position before God where you are as righteous as he himself is, and that enables God to deal with you on a, on a daily basis. But you've got to believe in Christ. Uh, repent and believe, and you must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Pastor, we've been talking about the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that we're supposed to be sexually pure, but is there some place that it condemns premarital sex? Yeah, I think there's another argument. I gave you the positive side of what the Bible says. It should be pure, it should be holy. But the Bible always balanced the positive with the negative, with the negative, with the positive. And this is where when you come down to the Scriptures, you know that God expects purity because God condemns all non-marital sex. And there are several passages where he itemizes the sexual acts that God condemns and God abominates. Uh, let's start, for example, with the commandment, 20, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 70, where it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is sexual activity between a marriage person uh, with a person who is not their husband or their wife. So if the wife finds herself involved with somebody who is not her husband sexually, that's adultery. If the husband finds himself involved with a woman that's not his wife, that is adultery. The Bible condemns that. So notice that adultery has to do with sex outside of marriage. 
uh, the partners. Um, and Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 is a very strong verse. Um, would you like to read that for me, please? Yep. I'll have it here shortly. Hebrews 13, 4. Uh-huh. says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Strong verse. It's just yeah. saying that God, as far as God is concerned, the marriage bed, sex within the marriage bed is honorable and undefiled. There's nothing defiling about it. But he warns whoremongers. The word whoremonger is used there, by the way, the Greek word is pornos, and it means one who indulges in, in some kind of a, uh, non-marital sex. It's a general term. Uh, I mean, there are many other verses. It's Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. All of those verses condemn adultery. It's very, very explicit that adultery is condemned. But in addition to adultery, fornication is condemned. Uh, what is fornication? Fornication is the sexual act between two people who are not married. That is condemned as well in the Bible. If you look at Acts uh, 15, verse 20, um, in that passage, well, Brother Nathan looks for it, that's a passage where the church met and was trying to decide what um, guidelines should we give the Gentile church. Should we impose the Mosaic law on the Gentile church? Uh, is it legitimate to do that? Put a burden and a yoke upon them that not even the Jews could keep. And, and the, the church met and decided that they would not put the, the Mosaic law as a burden upon the neck of the the uh, the believers, but they did put some restrictions that also relate to the Old Testament. And fifteen twenty says what? But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. See that fornication? The church is told you take abstain from it. That's what we call abstinence. Uh, God said it's not for a believer; it's not for people to get engaged in. In uh, Corinthians chapter six verse thirteen, um, let me read that one while you and you look for um, Galatians six nineteen for me. But in Corinthians chapter six verse thirteen, um, Paul writes and he says, "The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord." See, so the human body is not designed for people to be engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, that's not why God gave you the body. So that is clearly a restriction that God says. And then in um, Galatians six nineteen, six, there's, on, there's only 18 verses in chapter 6. Oh, well, the works of the flesh, it may be chapter 5 then, I, I think I might have. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it's 519. 519, okay. Yeah. Uh, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. It doesn't get much more clear than that. Uh, very, very, very clear. And you know there's a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, the believer should have the fruit of the Spirit, but he is told to put off the works of the flesh. But notice there that fornication is not a work of the Spirit, it's a work of the flesh. Ephesians 5.3 as well uh, um, these were this matter, and could you read that for me, please? Yeah, Ephesians five three. Five verse three says, "But fornication and all cleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints." I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. Not even once it should be in the church. Not even once, and that's why I say the the church would raise its moral standard and live by the the book itself. Uh, we could change society, we would give a hope to society, but the problem is that within the church, these things are fairly common, 
and it, it's actually violating the biblical principle and we're trying to teach people biblical principles while people in the church are actually abusing them so therefore the contradiction the hypocrisy doesn't encourage people to turn to Christ another very important verse and I'm going to read this one 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 for this is the will of God even your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication you can't get played into that it's within it's God's will that you stay away from this kind of thing so it's not only the act of uh, adultery it's the act of fornication but the Bible goes even further to deal with other sexual sins that uh, uh, that are wrong turn to Leviticus chapter 18 for just a moment and it deals with the sexual sin of incest that this also is condemned by God if you look at verse number 7, what does it say there? The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. So, clearly, you must not have relations with your natural mother. That's a given. I mean, but, by the way, this might sound rather gross and, and um, it almost... Um, intolerable that we would be talking about these things, but these are in God's Word. And the reason why we, we'll discover what in God's Word, because when God was leading the Jews from Egypt into, into Canaan, and he, was, uh, he told them to obliterate this cancer, get rid of this, he'd given them 430 years to repent. They hadn't repented. And now God is trying to do a, a cleansing. You will find later he gave the reason why he mentioned these things, because you know what he says? These are the things that they were practicing in the land, see? So if you go in there and you compromise with these people, you intermarry with these people, et cetera, et cetera, and you don't, you don't wipe them out, what is going to happen? Your children will become exactly what, what, how they become. So notice that incest. That look at verse number 8. Not only incest with your natural mother, but look at verse number 8. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. Again, this is a stepmother now, right? The first one was your mother, but notice a stepmother because he's married to a different person. And God says you should not have relations with your, your stepmother. But look at verse 9. The nakedness of thy sister, the daughter of thy father, or the daughter of thy mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness shalt thou not uncover. Your sister or your stepsister, right? I, I, I mean, it is so, God is so specific on these type of things that one cannot read the Bible without seeing his condemnation of every sexual act outside of marriage. But, um, but go down to verse number 10. The nakedness of thy son's daughter, or of thy daughter's daughter, even thy nakedness thou shalt not uncover, for theirs is thine own nakedness. That's your grandchild. You should not engage in sexual activity with your grandchild. If you look at uh, verses 12 and 13, you see that your aunt, you shouldn't get involved. Could you read that for me, please? Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's sister. She is thy father's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy mother's sister. She is thy mother's near kinsman. Look at verse 15. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy daughter-in-law. She is thy son's wife. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. We could go down in Leviticus and see it's not only the, the grandchild, the aunt, your uncle's wife, and your, your daughter-in-law. But if you look at verse 16, you'll find that your sister-in-law, you shouldn't do it too. Your stepdaughter, you shouldn't do it in verse 17. Your step uh, your step-granddaughter, you shouldn't do it too in verse number 17. And uh, and uh, your mother-in-law, you shouldn't do it. You know, the Bible is very, very specific. That any form of incest, God condemns. But he goes further than that. If you look at Leviticus chapter 18, 
So he not only condemned now adultery, he condemned what? Incest. Fornication. He mm-hmm. condemned incest. But look at uh, chapter 18, verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Look at chapter 20, verse 13. And that's still applicable for today. Of course. <laughs> all moral laws that God has laid down are applicable today. All moral laws. Because the moral principles don't change. The only thing that changes, of course, is our response to it. Back in those days, most of these are capital offenses. People who commit these kind of acts. Uh, God uh, demanded the, the death penalty. Now, we're not living in a theocracy any longer. And that is where the difference lies in the fact that the penalties are different because we're not going to kill somebody because they commit these kind of acts. But clearly, that doesn't change God's attitude towards it and, and, and whether or not they're unholy or not. Look, all of these things are worthy of death. That doesn't change. That's God's attitude. These are so evil and wicked that you ought to pay the penalty of death for you. But um, we don't have the right today because we're not living in theocracy, type, uh, theocracy to take the life of a person. Pastor, we've had two listeners contact the station <coughs> with a comment or a question for you. Sure. First one from Belmont. Uh, most young men learn about sex and their bodies on the street or from the world. Churches should have more programs, especially to the males, to educate them about realistic sex and marriage. I agree with that, 100%. And and this is the reason why I think the church needs to do it. The family is not doing it. And sometimes the family, for whatever embarrassment, shame, it's it's difficult to really deal with these issues with with, with your kids. And I think the church should perform that function, especially when they get into the teenage years and they reach puberty. I think that's a crucial period. And by the way, this is where the ministry of elderly women in the church come in. I mean, this is their job, to teach the younger women, as as Paul talks about in Timothy. But I can't understand. They want to preach. They want to sing. They want to do all. And the one thing that God says these senior people should be doing, they're not doing. But that's their job, to help the young generation and the men in the church should play that role in respect to the young men in the church once they reach puberty. But I agree wholeheartedly that it has to be a concerted effort and a deliberate effort on the part of the church to try to address these matters because if we don't, the information is going to come from the wrong sources and it's not going to be dealt with in a wholesome way from a biblical perspective. Caller from Seaview Farm wants to know, what do you think about Solomon having so many wives and concubines? If God says that man is only supposed to have one wife, then what do you think about Solomon? I think he was a wretch. It's clear language. I think he was a wretch. This is, and by the way, you'll notice that this happened in his old age. Uh, and uh, a lot of his marriages, by the way, were political marriages, where you marry within a family to extend your dynasty, etc., etc. But uh, the fact that Solomon um, did these things is not an endorsement of polygamy or endorsement of uh, bigamy, whatever it is. God's God's original intent and God's purpose is clearly set forth in the book of Genesis. What his intent was, these are perverted acts on uh, these men's part, whether it be Solomon or whether it be somebody else, Abraham, whoever, uh, these are acts that are wrong. Uh, But again, um, let me just say this. They did not have the extent of knowledge that we have today. They didn't have the full revelation that we have, and they were pretty much controlled by the social situation in their times. We have no excuse 
because we not only have the Old Testament, we only had the repercussions of the bad example of how it affected the entire marriage and the entire uh, family, but we also have the New Testament which speaks with absolute clarity. Remember that the Bible is progressive revelation. We have the fullness of what God's intent was in the New Testament. And if there's any doubt about morality, what the standard is, you come from the Old Testament, you go right into the, 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 the epistles and go into the New Testament, you see what God's will is. And Christ himself uh, speaks to this matter with great authority that even looking not even acting, uh, it's a sinful act on God's on man's part. You're listening to That's Truth. Thank you for the two listeners who contacted us with those comments or those questions. The phone line is available. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 268-462-7420. Or if you'd prefer not to speak live on the air, I understand, you can WhatsApp or text your message to 268 782 one four five four. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is eight thirty-eight. Pastor, you were referencing what the Bible says about not having sex outside of marriage. Yeah, we talked about. I mean, the reason why I'm, we're doing this quite deliberately because we are living in a biblically illiterate generation that doesn't have the Bible on a regular basis. Not even uh, in the school. I, I just picked up a. Um, I just picked up a book on religious education uh, that's taught in the secondary schools by the program. And really, it's, a, it's a more a book of comparative religions where you're comparing the major religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism together. But in terms of really going uh, teaching Bible and the principles of Scripture, it was so deficient. It's more matter to see, here's what they, they, they believe, what they practice, where they meet, and so on and so forth. And I, that was kind of disappointing because in my day, uh, the Bible was taught in my school days. So we, we, we knew the Ten Commandments. We, we knew the biblical. We, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I did the book of Acts. Uh, and the Gospels as part of my uh, Cambridge exam for religious education. The book wow. of Acts, <laughs> literally. Uh, but things have changed where now there's more comparative religion rather than biblical Christianity because I think the Western world has sold out. Um, you know, you go to Islamic countries, they're strict that you can only teach Islam in, in their schools. You come to a Christian democracy and we allow everything to come in, right? I think we got we got to de- decide who we identify as. If we are a Christian democracy, um, I am for one that would be... Um, think that we should put push Christian principles within our schools because we are a Christian nation or Christian democracies within the Caribbean. That doesn't mean that it doesn't give you a chance to discuss the other groups. But clearly, uh, we uh, should, if we claim to be a Christian nation, we should uh, be pushing the Christian faith, even though we, we have tidbits of the others and let people know what they believe. But they all they can't all be right. There's only one true religion, one true faith. That's the faith that comes through Jesus Christ. But let's get back to what we said. Uh, so we see that fornication is condemned, adultery is condemned, incest is condemned, homosexual is condemned. But there's another staggering one. Look at Leviticus chapter 18, verse 23. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therein. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down there too. It is confusion. I look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 15 and 16. And if a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death. And ye shall slay the beast. And if a woman approach unto any beast and lie down there too, thou shalt kill the woman and the beast. 
they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Isn't that a little extreme, Pastor? That what? What's extreme? To be put to death. Well, the other two people were put to death as well. Don't forget that you were supposed to put to death for incest, fornication, adultery. But why would God have such a strong standard? Well, we, we'll come to that because later we will discover in the New Testament that the Bible says every sin outside a man uh, is, is outside a man's body. But fornication is against a man's body. We'll talk about that in, in the next program because there are things that begin to change in a person's body once they've engaged in sexual activity that they become in bondage. And he knew that. That's why he's made restrictions. Let this thing stay within marriage because if it doesn't stay within marriage, uh, it will affect your marital life in the future. And, and people don't understand that. There are people who are having relations with their wife, but in their minds they're having relations with somebody that been been five years ago or whatever it is. So that is why the Lord is guarding your marriage, you know. You shouldn't have thoughts other than your, for your thoughts for your wife or for your partner, but because of the activity that's been involved primarily, it now gets into your marriage in your mind. Of course, you don't tell your wife that, you don't tell your partner that, but it can actually eat the soul out of your marriage. But bestiality is something that is mentioned here. And to my mind, this shows you the length of depravity that human sexuality leads people to. And let me say this, the current... Um, Obsession or the current approval of homosexuality is leading to something even worse. Believe you me, it's going to come to this point where this matter of bestiality is going to become part of society as well. And the same way you can't, you 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 know, you you permit um, a man to sleep with a boy, a man to sleep with a thing. What's going to stop a man from sleeping with his pet if he has rights? Does he not have rights? And this whole rights thing, I think, this is where it is headed. Look, we come from fornication and adultery, we come down to incest, we come from incest to homosexuality, then we come to lesbianism, then we now come to bestiality. It gets worse and worse and worse. There are actually places making adult women, I mean like robots now, to perform the functions that a, a, a woman would perform to a man who's married. I mean, we have reached the point where we've become so depraved and... Who draws the line and it, and the silence of the church is and the muteness of the church without speaking out against these things? Silence is endorsement, and that's why the church needs to speak with a, a, a very strong voice against these things and let people know that these things are wrong. Pastor, do you ever find yourself just being overwhelmed and discouraged with the state of immorality, the lack of moral? purity within the world that we live? If you're counseling and you're doing it on a fairly regular basis, let me tell you something. It is traumatizing. Number one, most cases you're surprised. You're surprised at the frequency of people who are married and they're the frequent amount of partners they had before they got married. That shocks you. Uh, I can't tell you how shocking it is. Is that you, you sometimes wish you didn't have that information, but if you're going to help people in their sexual problems in life, you've got to know the pattern that was there before, etc., etc. And uh, so sometimes the information, you have to garner the information to help you to understand what's going on. But what I find as, a, as uh, in doing this kind of things and so on and so forth is that it's overwhelming. It is totally, totally overwhelming. And you can, you can get so use the word discourage, but so frustrated to believe that why would somebody, what would cause a person to go down this lane to so devalue themselves 
as to surrender to one person after another person after another person after another person. I mean, I, I, I can't fathom that. I really can't fathom that. <coughs> but listen, it's very, 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 very common. But again, I repeat, that's the kind of world the first century world was in. It was not only that men had several wives and several women, but generally speaking, it was common in Greek society <coughs> that the husband would have a little boy as well. So it's, it's far worse in those pagan days than it is currently, but we're going back to neo-paganism because with the surrender of Christianity and we move away, now we're in a post-Christian world, we're now living in a neo-pagan age. age. <coughs> you were talking about Leviticus and some of those <coughs> deplorable, immoral acts. Why would God even have that written in Scripture? Uh, I mean, most of us listening, I would like to think, haven't ever had that desire to go outside of marriage or lay with a, I mean, we've all been tempted to lust, but uh, to lay with a beast, why would God lay out such extreme commands? Well, I think that we need, <coughs> I think he wants, it, wants us to understand, <coughs> excuse me, that sex is a powerful force, very powerful force. <coughs> As a matter of fact, <coughs> take the, <coughs> the threat of AIDS. You think that's made any significant change in the way that people live? You would think that the threat of, of dying would would cause people to curtail their sexual activity. But the truth of the matter is, um, you, you don't hear much about AIDS. They don't hear much about herpes and so on and so forth because it is no people have gone back to, to normal and they are engaging in, in sexual activity in spite of the threat of, of, of death. So that gives you an idea how powerful um, this matter of sex is in a person's life. And that's why... He wants you to understand that if it is not controlled and not regulated by his principles, it devolves and degenerates and becomes a distortion and an aberration that is far beyond what he ever uh, intended for humankind. So it goes into perversion. That's one of the reasons that he has it's given it to us. The other thing, of course, is that we must learn from past societies that we don't make the same repeat, repeat mistakes that these countries have made. For example, if you go to, to Leviticus chapter 19, you'll see that God gives reasons <coughs> why he was against these things. Could you look there, Matthew, uh, Leviticus chapter 19? Leviticus <coughs> chapter 19. What yeah, verse? If you look at verse 24, for example. Yeah, Leviticus 19 verse 24 says, But in the fourth year... All the fruit there no, no, uh, are. 19? Um, maybe 18. <coughs> 18. 24. 24 says, Defile not ye yourselves in any yeah. of these things, for in all these nations are defiled which I cast out before you. So notice two things there. Number one, all of these things we just mentioned uh, that God is against. He says, the reason why I'm against it because you're going to defile yourself. Defilement, by the way, means that you become polluted, you become contaminated. Now, the significance of that is this, that a defiled person could not approach God. So he's saying that these are the things that separate you and me. These things cause you to be alienated from me, right? So that's why he's against these things. It creates a sin in the first case, and sin separates between man and God. Therefore, it, thank you. The other thing is that in verse 24, he points out that these nations did this before. These are heathen nations, right? 
So they're practicing these all ungodly things because they don't know, know the truth and live in God. They don't have a moral standard. And God is saying, uh, you, you must not do what the heathen is doing. You, you belong to me, right? You have knowledge they don't have. So, and then the other thing, look at um, 24. He says, um, in 24, he says that my judgment, uh, read that again, 24. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. Exactly. His judgment came upon them because he told the Jews when they went into Canaan, wipe them out, every single one of them. And uh, the Lord is saying, I, I put them out of the land, I purged them out of the land. In other words, I judge this kind of thing. And his teaching is this, that if we practice these kind of things, his judgment will fall upon us, and it will fall upon nations as well. So are you saying that God's judgment is going to come upon the Western <clears throat> world that ex- is starting to accept these prevalently? Don't you think it's already started? Yeah. Right? If you read uh, the book of Romans, judgment does not always mean that there's fire coming down. Judgment means that God takes his hand off the society and allows the society to rot from the inside. Hmm. God gave them up to these things. He surrendered. He, he removed the restraint so that they just bury themselves in their iniquity. And uh, if you look also at um, verse 25. And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity therefore upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. That shows you how it affects not just the individual, but the whole country. The whole country becomes defiled. You know, we talk about being a Christian nation, having a day of prayer, and having a gospel fast, and all of that. And God looks down from heaven and said, wait a minute, who is this for? Right? Mm. Uh, the nation is defiled. It's not just the individual now. And then if you look at verse, um, <clears throat> um, last part of verse number 25, what, what it said? Yeah. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Right, the land itself, because the land is under divine curse. But that simply means as well that the land is not going to yield, and uh, it's almost a land fighting against the, the inhabitants. In other words, you're not going to get the abundance of fruits and crops and so on and so forth, because there's a moral universe. We go against God's law to our own detriment. We don't break the law. The law finally breaks us. And we got to understand that sin affects the blessings on a country. Whether you get proper rainfall, whether you get proper produce for the land, it's all linked to morality. And uh, I know we, we, you know the sanders are so bright they can put all kinds of things in the soil and so on and so forth, but it's not going to yield uh, what it would normally yield if we were living righteously. And then if you look at Leviticus 18 verse 29b, uh, what did they say? Even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Again, the reason why we stay away from this thing because in the judgment of God and the assessment of God as a moral judge of the universe, he said these are capital offenses. These are things that really, in truth and fact, I ought to cut you off. That hasn't changed, by the way. We don't enact that now because we're not in a theocracy. But God's attitude towards these sins is the same. People who do these things, God says they deserve to die, right? And the last thing, if you look at um, uh, chapter 20, verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. Now, notice that he also says that these sins are an abomination. Now, there are three words that are that give you and explain what that means. The, for example, in the Old Testament, um, the two words, the words uh, sequus, which means extreme wickedness, and the next word is 
Taliba, which means strong revulsion. So these are things that are so extreme in, in evil and wickedness that God it repulses God. And the Greek word, by the way, is atimios, which means as negative, and Timaeus is law, which means these things are all lawful, which simply means that an abomination is that which is contrary to God's law. So this makes it in itself um, evil. And then if you look at verse 14, there's another word that he used to describe these things. Uh, 2014? Yeah. And if a man take a wife and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burnt with fire, both he and they that there be no wickedness among you. So it's not only uh, abominable in sense that it's unlawful and it's extremely wicked and it caused great revulsion with God, but God says it's wickedness. And then if you look at verse 12, he says another term that is used there to describe these things. And if a man lie with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have wrought confusion. Their blood shall be upon them. Moral confusion, and that's where we are today, you know. Uh, We have really messed things up, but if we would just go back to the Bible to see the standard and how, how God views these things, I don't know how it would be possible for Christians to be so nonchalant and so reckless and so loose in the way that we live. You were talking about God's judgment, and we're just coming through the usual peak of hurricane season. And I've heard people say that some of these extreme hurricanes that we've been having recently are clearly God's judgment on mankind. Is it? man's place to make a statement like that? Well, is is man's position to make that if it's in the scripture? If the Bible makes it quite clear uh, that judgment comes upon us, humankind, as a result of sinful practices, we have the right to do that as pastors, as, as um, we're not prophets, but as pastors, we have the right to say what God says. And if God says that uh, he withholds blessing, and he sends storms and he sends judgment upon nations that turn away from his moral law and practice it is evil. Um, I, I couldn't I could care less how who gets offended. Uh, one has to be true to Scripture, must have to be law to Scripture. And as I keep saying, uh, and most people would, would say this as well, it's not the things in the Bible we don't understand that creates problems for us, it's things that we do understand. But we must be a voice that is declaring what God says is so, and even other people get offended. They're not offended with you. They're offended with God. We are just the messenger to say what God says. And it's quite right to be able to say uh, that uh, because of evil, God sends judgment upon a nation. As a matter of fact, I would think, I'm a Barbadian, right? I would think that if we had a tremendous devastating storm that wiped out our great developed population, I would never think that's just a mere accident, Right. Uh, God controls his sovereign. He allows it, and he allows it for a reason. And, and don't forget, by the way, that a lot of the reason there's not as much judgment as, as it is should be. You remember the story of Lot and uh, Abraham. It's the righteous among the nations that preserve the nations. You take the book of um, the biblical teaching in the book of Revelation and uh, the biblical teaching of the doctrine of the rapture, that when the church is raptured and the righteous goes and the Holy Spirit goes, read what happens afterwards. All the restraint is gone and all hell break loose. It's the righteous that restrains 
God's judgment on planet Earth. You remember, in, uh, he said if 10 be found there and 15, and, and the Lord said, I wouldn't destroy Sodom for 10 or 15. And then he couldn't find one. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, he, and that was the end of it. As about Abraham went to about 10, I think. And then he realized, well, 10 is my family, so it's no use praying anymore. But he was saying, if you find 50 or you find whatever, the Lord said, if I find them, I wouldn't do it. And I think that whether we know it or not, the Christian has benefited society because we are the restraining power in society. The indwelling Holy Spirit, God uses the believer and the righteous substantially the reason why God hasn't poured out more judgment on our Western civilizations. Pastor, we've been using the Bible as a basis for why we should be talking about enforcing abstinence or practicing abstinence. And next week we'll discuss more about are there views or reasons outside of the biblical worldview as to why we should practice abstinence. But let me just ask you this in closing as we've sure. got one minute left. Is Do you really, really, really in your heart believe that abstinence is practical for a single person in 2019 with all the distractions, all the temptations that are out there? Is that really realistic? Well, let's, let's ask another question. Is the Bible relevant for our times? That's, that's, that's all the problem right there. Is the Bible relevant for our times? Is the moral laws of God restricted only to past times, or are these things expected of, of Christians? Here's another question. Um, does the Holy Spirit, is he any less powerful than he was in the New Testament days? No. The answer is no. So the, the idea is a cop-out when we uh, allow people's specious reasoning and uh, their presuppositions about morality uh, to in some way either try to embarrass us or intimidate us uh, uh, to, to cause us to move from a biblical standard of morality. Well, let's stick with the book. So we'll continue this topic next week. We'll be talking about abstinence. What does the Bible teach about what our views should be on sex? What uh, are the consequences of not abiding by the biblical worldview and that God's teachings on this topic and what is the biblical view of sex ed. Make sure that you tune in next week. Encourage others to tune in to the program. God bless you. Have a great evening and thanks for joining us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.